Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Hey everybody, hope you're hanging in there during this really, really difficult time. My thoughts are with you. Stay strong, stay healthy, stay safe. I wanted to put together a bunch of episodes that are near and dear to my heart around the JFK assassination. Because Bob Dylan just came out with an incredible 17-minute anthem on this topic called Murder Most Foul that relates to not only what happened back then, but what's happening through the years in politics and probably relating a lot to what's happening right now for all of you. And so I thought I'd do something I never did before. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play a couple of minutes of this song on five different occasions during the next podcast and the next three weeks, including the one I just released on Monday with Jim Mars, who is one of the foremost experts on the JFK assassination. And it was his last interview that he ever did. And today's interview as well with Gordon Ferry, a guy who was a national security advisor during the JFK administration and is a wealth of information and credibility. His new book, entitled Evil, describes the entire story of the JFK assassination, the timing, the participants, the motive, the structure. Led by LBJ, it identifies the roles of the CIA, FBI, mafia, military intelligence, and wealthy persons played out in the conspiracy. The key to this was the relationship Gordon had with a participant, Elliot Janaway, political advisor to LBJ, and the confession elicited shortly before his death. Other sources included the CIA contract officers, Richard Helms, the director of the CIA, and Secret Service officers. And I hope you enjoy these episodes. They're different from what I normally do. They're a departure from the tone of how these interviews normally go on industry standard, but they are incredibly informational and powerful. They're not well recorded. They were done on Skypes with everyone. A lot of these people are older and they don't like to travel, and they're very scared of even divulging their locations. But if you get past the sound, I think you're really going to find that the content in all of these six interviews over a six-week period are incredibly groundbreaking, impactful, 
daunting, and shocking. If you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter or Instagram. I'm grateful for all your support, and I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I do. Take care. Hey everybody, before I get started with this episode with Gordon Ferry, I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world, many of which you'll hear on the next three weeks of podcasts. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. It was a dark day in Dallas, November 63. A day that will live on in infamy. President Kennedy was a right line Good day to be living and a good day to die He led to the slaughter like a sacrificial lamb He said, wait a minute, boys, you know who I am? Of course we do, we know who you are Then they blew off his head while he was still in the car Shot down like a dog in broad daylight Was a matter of timing and the timing was right You got unpaid debts We've come to collect We're gonna kill you with hatred Without any respect We'll mock you and shock you And we'll put it in your face We've already got someone here to take your place The day they blew out the brains of the king Thousands were watching, no one saw a thing It happened so quickly, so quick by surprise Right there in front of everyone's eyes Greatest magic trick ever under the sun 
Perfectly executed, skillfully done Wolfman, oh wolfman, oh wolfman, how Rub-a-dub-dub, it's a murder most foul Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure and my honor to introduce to you one of the rarest of the rare and who's going to really reveal information that is going to blow you away. Please welcome my guest today from his home, Gordon Ferry. Fine, welcome to our home. What a beautiful home it is. It really is beautiful. I have so many things to ask you. But I think the first thing I have to ask you after watching the film is who shot JFK and why do you believe that James Files delivered the killing round? Uh, The answer to that question is that uh, Charles Nicoletti and and Files are the two shooters that day, firing from, uh, in the case of Nicoletti, from the Dow Tex building and Files from the Grassy Knoll. Um, I've taken a look at the, um, the allegations of other people being shooters and what have you, but the examination of uh, the interviews, the taped interviews of Charles Files, corroborated from many other sources. I've gotten a lot of people to talk that shouldn't have talked, um, tell me that they are the two who did the shooting and why and so forth. Um, the my background, in part, is, I think, unique to what I've seen in the sense that I've been a sniper. Uh, and not only that, but at the time that this occurred was when I was doing that, uh, and when I was, a, let's call it an, an advanced shooter. But I was doing that for the Marine Corps and for presidential security. Um, looking at what has occurred and, and, and the players, by somebody who has been a player makes all the difference in the world. Uh, Right after the assassination, when a number of, we call them shooters, talked informally, there was a unanimous feeling as to what had happened and what didn't happen because of our expertise. And I think the people who were involved and behind the assassination and the coup d'etat were well aware of that and did what they could to avoid having people like me around to take a look at things. Everybody says that it's was a well-planned out event. Yet in 51 years, there's not a written memo. There's not a person who was sitting next to a person who had too much to drink at a bar and recorded what they said. There's not any kind of inter-office phone call that might have been recorded. There's nothing in 51 years except a guy in a prison giving a confession two different times to video cameras and documentarians, James Files. How is it possible that if all these factions, Cuba, the CIA, possibly LBJ, the Chicago mob, that there's not one piece of written evidence or anything in 51 years, and there's only one guy who's admitting to taking the shot. Um, I find your premise uh, completely faulty. Um, The reason is there have been plenty of people who uh, tried to come forward, many of whom were murdered, many. 
And the second thing is that the, the cover-up of all of this uh, was accomplished by the people that actually did it. So anytime you know, there was something to be avoided or suppressed, they had all the switches to do that. Uh, it was a true coup d'etat. I, I, in my book that I'm about to come out with uh, called Evil, it names all the names in the institutions, the CIA, all these people were involved. And that sounds impossible in and itself. Uh, but it happens to be true. The CIA was principally running the show, but they had been in bed with the, with the mafia forever and still are today. Uh, the FBI was up to its neck in it, and they took care of doctoring most of the evidence. They saw to it uh, what evidence was gathered and what evidence was ignored. Uh, Richard Helms, uh, I know, uh, and I had a personal run-in because he was a little upset that I was uncovering so much about the, all the assassination of material witnesses that were going on. Typically, when witness lists were published for any one of the three or four congressional uh, investigations that were committed. And the Warren Commission was a total setup with participants in the actual coup d'etat. It was a coup d'etat. The only guy who didn't do any shooting was Oswald. All right, so you had said that it's a faulty premise. I want to go on that, if you don't mind. So you say that a lot of people have died. In the documentary, it says over 100 people have died trying to get the word out. But you're still with us, and you have a lot of statements that you've made. Why did those people, presumably, why were they killed, but you're still with us? There are a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is that my wife and I moved to Mexico for seven or eight years, but before I left, um, I contacted the Secret Service and arranged a meeting in Norfolk, Virginia, with a representative from uh, Secret Service Intelligence and uh, also the manager of the field office in, in Norfolk, which is very substantial because of the naval base. Uh, and in it, I told them some, but not all, of what actually happened. And I was asked by uh, a question by the uh, intelligence person why I'd waited so long to come forward. And I, and I said, because I didn't feel like getting clipped. And he laughed. He says, I guess that's a pretty good reason, because he already knew about it. Okay. He knew about it. He knew about everything. And the second reason is because... Um, I was doing um, just all sorts of incredible things with the U.S. government in the Cold War and the war on drugs and terrorism and what have you and different things that were going on, very uniquely from Wall Street. And I was working with foreign intelligence agencies, um, and I was very valuable, and I had lots of friends. I had a kidnapping attempt on me in Brazil, and the Mossad saved my life there. So Richard Helms was a little upset with me, and I was under surveillance, and I hosted a, I didn't host, a, I was asked to be the only speaker at a luncheon, a private luncheon in Washington with high-level defense people. And um, Helms uh, came uh, to that meeting, and uh, was the, only had, I think, five tables with people seated, and the only place there wasn't a place card was across from me. 
So Helms came in and he sat down there and I went through my spiel and then we all had lunch. And he never stopped having eye contact with me and he never talked to anybody. And it was, I think a message was either, you know, to try and intimidate me, which was a waste of time. Or the other was that he was trying to figure out if he could get away with clipping me. Because what I had been investigating was how many people he was killing. If all these people were involved, and as you know, we all know in our lives, you cover something up, you're the ones who did it. The people who are covering things up are not the people who didn't do it. They're the people who did it. And obviously, who has the power in the U.S. government to cover things up? I don't believe you can cover things up without the president knowing. I don't believe you can cover things up without the head of the CIA knowing. But back then there's no email. There's either phone calls or inter-office memos or any kind of written documents. Again, why in 51 years has no one seen a written document that has anything to do with directives having to do with November 22nd? Uh, again, your premise is faulty. Um, the, there have been plenty of documents, there have been plenty of people coming forward. And what happens in those instances is there's been a, over a 55-year period run by the CIA of disinformation. That disinformation has led to what I would call the assassination of a German chap a few months ago who was uncovering that suppression uh, of the media in Europe by the CIA. And similarly, we have people in the U.S. who have uncovered, and it's on the record, you can find it in the government records, that shows the CIA had complete operations of, uh, of subduing the media here in the United States and does to this day. All the investigators who have uh, written uh, wonderful articles, books, and what have you, based on, on tidbits of information, really, that information is suppressed. Major publishing houses will not publish them. So they have to go to small publishers. In other cases, you have um, the, the fact that at the time of the assassination and in the investigations thereafter, the FBI was going around and they were gathering up all the information they could get and they were either destroying it, altering it, or they were locking it up for decades uh, not to be looked at. Um, because Jagger Hoover was involved in this and the people who worked with him on the technical side of altering evidence, there were about five of them, were all subpoenaed to appear before Congress and they were all murdered within two weeks. All right, so you had the CIA and the FBI and uh, completely covering up this thing all this time, right up to date. And I know exactly what I'm talking about. There is hard evidence out there a lot of it, and it's about to come forth. As an example, um, the other people who've tried to deal with this and have tried to surface information, I say, I call it, they're working from the bottom up. I had the luxury of getting somebody at the top talk to me before he died and give me the top-down road that I took in order to develop the information on all of this. And that was Elliot Janeway, the economist and advisor to every Democratic president from Roosevelt to LBJ. And he was well aware of what was going on and part of it. Elliot Janeway um, was a, probably the best informed man I've ever met in my life. 
Uh, in the course of doing what I did for the U.S. government, uh, I would attend uh, a what they call the Force and Readiness Exhibitions for the United States Marine Corps that are held once or twice a year. When you go and you view equipment and technologies that are being offered for sale to the military. And I specialized in aviation and black projects in aviation. And um, at one of those events, which was at the, uh, in D.C., I saw a technical tear sheet on a company in California called American Aircraft. And it had the technology, one of the technologies I was looking for. So I approached that company and its president, uh, Bill Moody, and got involved along with the Vice Admiral, um, uh, former head of area, U.S. Naval Aviation, who was interested in it as well. And they arranged for me to meet their chief advisor and investor, one of their investors, and that happened to be L.A. Janeway. So that's how I met him uh, at my club in New York. And uh, uh, from there, he and I developed a close rapport because he had a weekly national uh, radio show as well as a syndicated column all over the world on finance and politics. And I would contribute to him on international finance matters uh, in that. And we became very close. And just before uh, he died, um, when I finally got him to talk about what went on with LBJ, he's a very well-known advisor to LBJ along with Bobby Baker. Um, at that time, uh, he talked to me about what happened, but he stopped. He couldn't go on any, any further. And then it was only a few months later, two or three months later, he died. Okay. And I had promised him I would never talk about anything he told me um, as long as he was alive. And he never talked to anybody else. So he's the only one that I know at the top in the conspiracy talked. It wasn't that he was a conspirator. It was that he couldn't stay away from <laughs> uh, the the drama of it all and his uh, being enmeshed in that. And I can supplement that. I do in my book with information from his family and from others as to what type of man he was. So um, that was um, uh, a situation where I have documentary evidence or documentary evidence is at hand, which is that in the summer of 1963, uh, approximately three months before the assassination, Elliot went to money managers, um, that, and that's documented because people were frightened to death when he'd go see them, talking about how great it would be if something happened to Kennedy and uh, Lyndon Johnson would become president, and we'll all be a lot better off if that happens. The documentation exists and has been substantiated on that. So there is documentary evidence, there are witnesses, Many came forth and got killed for their trouble. Others uh, were hit by the disinformation program that the CIA has been running all this time, uh, which ridicules people who come forward as conspiracy freaks and what have you. And this has been uh, fake news. It's been uh, pure disinformation of a classic type. And it's frankly, it's the swamp that Mr. Trump is involved with now. Uh, draining the swamp means exposing these institutions for the criminality of what they've been involved in. And trust me, it'll happen, it'll happen this year. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, 
and you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Hush, little children, you'll understand. The Beatles are coming, they're gonna hold your hand. Slide down the banister, go get your coat. Ferry across the mercy and go for the throw. There's three bumps coming all dressed in rags. Pick up the pieces and over the flags. I'm going to Woodstock, it's the Aquarian age. Then I'll go over to Altamont and sit near the stage. Put your head out the window, let the good times roll. There's a party going on behind the glassy door. Stack up the bricks, pour the cement. Don't say Dallas don't love you, Mr. President. Put your foot in the tank and let's step on the gas. Try to make it to the triple underpass. Black face singer, white face clown. Better not show your faces after the sun goes down. I'm in the red light district, like a cop on the beat. Living in a nightmare on Elm Street. When you're down on New Bellum, put your money in your shoe. Don't ask what your country can do for you. Cash on the ballad, money to burn. Dealey Plaza, make a left hand turn. Crossroads gonna flying a ride The place where faith, hope and charity died Shoot him while he runs, boy Shoot him while you can See if you can shoot the invisible man Goodbye, Charlie Goodbye, Uncle Sam Frankly, my scholar, I don't give a damn. What is the truth? Where did it go? Ask Oswald and Ruby Leon, I know. Shut your mouth, say it, and I slow down. Business is business, and it's a murder most found. Thank you.
from your expertise, take us through how it's possible from the first germ of an idea that we got to get rid of this guy to how it gets to the point where it's all set up and ready to go in Dallas. What, in your expertise, what's the first conversation that happens? And is there anybody in the room, like there is in every room, in every conversation in the world, saying, uh, I think that sounds like a crazy idea. I don't think that's, uh, we're not gonna be, we're not gonna be killing the president. I mean, come on, you guys are kidding, right? Is there somebody who's fighting it internally? And where do the first germs of the idea come from as it gets planned? And how long do you think it is in the making? I can tell you exactly when the planning began in some detail. The planning really started with the Democratic Convention uh, when uh, Kennedy was uh, going to run for the first time for the presidency uh, in California. and. It starts with the Kennedy family. Um, Joseph P. Kennedy wanted to have his eldest son, Joe, run for president after the war, but unfortunately, Joe was a very brave man, died in combat towards the end of the war, and therefore uh, Jack inherited the mantle of, of his father's ambition. Uh, Joseph P. Kennedy um, knew that to have a Roman Catholic president, um, Bear in mind, I come from that period, uh, so I'm like a time capsule. I remember how people felt about a Catholic becoming president and the Pope running the country. That may jar a few memory uh, cells for you. Um, and they knew that in order to win the presidency, they had to win over the Dixiecrats, the Southern Democratic votes, who detested uh, aristocratic uh, New Englanders in general, and the Kennedys specifically. Did Oswald actually try to kill JFK, and who did he work for? All right, um, at the convention in California in the summer of 1960, um, at that point, Joseph P. Kennedy and JFK were working towards his nomination for President of the United States at the convention. Key to that for the Kennedys was getting the Dixiecrat vote and the opinion that um, Kennedy, uh, Joseph P. Kennedy had was that Lyndon Johnson controlled the Dixiecrats and if he could get him on board, they could deliver the Southern vote. His uh, son, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and his people that were around him uh, didn't like any thought about uh, LBJ, and he went after Stuart Symington. And his father apparently ignored him, <laughs> just went ahead. And um, he had a meeting and a negotiation for three days, Joseph P. Kennedy did in California, which resulted in an offer being made to LBJ and his closest advisors, which at that meeting included Bobby Baker and uh, Elliot Janeway was present. And it was an offer of a $4 million bribe from Joseph P. Kennedy, matched by another $4 million from uh, LBJ's business partners for a total of $8 million. And that was going to be rejected. 
However, um, LBJ was facing a number of indictments that were under preparation, I think nine, at the Department of Justice for very serious federal crimes, including murder. And he needed to make all that go away. So Bobby Baker um, reminded him and then reminded others there who were dead set against this that Lyndon would only be a heartbeat away from the presidency if he were vice president. When uh, the word got to Jack Kennedy, which was a fait accompli, that uh, LBJ would be his running mate, he had already closed the deal with Stuart Symington. So there was quite a ruckus. And of course, uh, he wasn't about to tell anybody that daddy told me I had to. (laughs) So um, at the end of the convention, LBJ and two people I won't name now, but are in my book, um, retired as soon as they got back to Dallas and started planning the assassination of Kennedy at that early date. The, um, what happened was that over the course of his first term in office, uh, which is when I was there with him, um, he did a number of other things that alienated uh, all the key groups that constitute part of what we call today the shadow government or the uh, what have you. And uh, as a result of that, and that included Jagger Hoover, who was going to be forcibly retired. It included the CIA, which was going to be broken up and replaced. And there is an order in existence from JFK to uh, Secretary McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, to break it up into, quote, a thousand pieces, unquote. Also, Lyndon was going to be kicked off the ticket for the second term, and he was still facing those charges that Bobby had pursued. The mafia was pissed off because old man Kennedy had uh, gotten their support in Illinois and West Virginia for the election, which Jack only narrowly won, and they expected rewards. Instead, they got Bobby Kennedy sick down. The oil people, um, uh, he was, was going to take away the oil depletion allowances, so they were upset. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the far-right military intelligence people um, were uh, very upset with him because he had already started, uh, by the end of his first term, to withdraw troops from Vietnam. But there was more to it than that, which again, I go into my book, but um, that's enough for now. It's quite a bit on your plate for that. So um, that's how I know from uh, what Elliot Janeway told me about that meeting. I've had cooperation from other places um, that that took place. There is actually, there are some tape recordings I understand in existence, which are devastating, absolutely devastating. Um, And so uh, that's, that's how it started. That's how separate groups of people can come together and common cause. That's how a coup d'etat comes about. There was a 1,200-word article that uh, David Denton wrote, which was quite marvelous. It's up on his blog. Uh, And in it, he provides uh, some material evidence along those lines as well. Um, And he he took the name uh, 
that I offered them of Nexus for the article, N-E-X-U-S, which is a coming together of uh, a number of things. Do you mind just taking another minute, letting our audience know how many days before does it really escalate in terms of the back and forth of information and directives for every single person? Because obviously, Lee Harvey Oswald has a role. There's some role that he's been told to do. Now, the American people, a lot of them feel like his role was to shoot the president. A lot of people who are experts in the field say his role was to plant the gun at the depository with the shells and meet somebody in the movie theater to take him to another place or to go someplace else. The mobsters that were purportedly involved, somebody has to tell them and give them a directive of what's going to happen. So when does this escalate to where it's a go? Because there are reports that have said that the morning of the assassination that the CIA called off the assassination but the mob decided that they weren't going to follow those orders. So I just wanted to make sure from your expertise, this last piece, so we can be informed and know from your research and you're one of the most renowned people around. So what your thought process is about that last week and how it escalated. I, I can answer that very specifically, the last part. Uh, I have total detail on everything else you've touched on, but I'm going to sit here and we're going to be here for a day and night to go through everything that's in the book. There's so much that went on, all of which I know about. Uh, but in terms of your specific question, uh, number one, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was simply the patsy, beginning to end. Okay. Was he doing other things? Yes. Were they uh, highly questionable things? Yes. Do I know what they are? Yes. Do I know where he got his income from? Yes. The shooting that took place from the Dow Tex building involved the CIA, sorry, the uh, um, mafia hitman, Charles Nicoletti. And uh, also in the building at that time was Johnny Rosselli, who flew in on a CIA-sponsored MATS flight with Plumlee as a pilot. Family, and also, which I've been in communication with him, we're trying to get together. He was overseas when we tried to contact him recently. Uh, and there are also um, the, um, what's his name, uh, Dale Braden uh, was in there in, in a minor role. So um, the principal shooter was, uh, in fact, uh, to be um, Nicoletti. And uh, James Files, as was he faithfully reported, was asked to be backup shooter, and he did exactly what I would have done. I walked Dealey Plaza in, in less time than he did, and I picked the same places <laughs> uh, as a sniper would. We call them hides in the military. And he, he claims a military background, and there's no question that the CIA can make those records evaporate any time they feel like it. So, uh, yeah, and you talk then about the activities. Well, the activities I can, I do describe in the book, including organization charts and what the chains of command were, what the roles were of each, and uh, what I call five meetings that occurred that were absolutely key. The first meeting being the negotiation for the $8 million, 
Um, and of course, that negotiation opened up on LBJ's side, saying he wanted to be president and Jack could be vice president, and that didn't go anywhere. Uh, the second one being the meeting where the deal was proposed, and Bobby Baker said that you're only a heartbeat away, so accept it. Uh, the third meeting uh, occurred the night before the assassination in the Texas hotel, uh, which I reported on my talks uh, in Dallas uh, in November of the last two years. Um, the next meeting was at Clint Murchison's in Fort Worth, in Dallas, rather, sorry. And then there was a last meeting, which was very key that nobody knows anything about, and I report on in the book that night. So, uh, and aside from those meetings, there was an infrastructure over who was in charge of the overall of the, uh, the day in Dealey Plaza and the various groups that had to be coordinated. Uh, in fact, I have that chain of command. And then there was, of course, also the plan for the FBI's principal role in the cover-up uh, in terms of the physical evidence, interviews, and what have you, and the CIA's role in the cover-up in terms of seeing to it that uh, witnesses uh, did not bear witness. Um, and the CIA has a culture and it has a, a signature killing, and I'm familiar with that signature. Uh, and where they can, they prefer not to get their hands dirty themselves. They do that to second and third parties. Uh, and the FBI isn't in that kind of business. And I spent almost three years uh, working in Wackenhut Corporation while attending college as area supervisor in southern New England um, in the late 60s. And uh, with FBI agents, and they were wonderful people that had great skills packages. Both in the CIA and the FBI, the people who were doing the dirty stuff were highly compartmentalized, and that was not general knowledge to the rank and file, nor would it agree with their culture, to be honest with you. But it happened, and I, I know the names, and uh, the evidence, if people had the, the insight or had the privilege of getting somebody at the top to give you the key to the puzzle, um, uh, went, uh, went. I won't say easily, but uh, when you combine that with other people that I got to talk in the CIA and the uh, Secret Service and uh, and uh, other places uh, to do with Cuba and the Cuban exile community, and the CIA has been pumping out disinformation for over 55 years, and they've put so many red herrings out there, and they put so much data out there, and hid so much real data, and they. You know, smoke and mirrors so much that uh, really without a key to the puzzle, it's hard for anybody to figure out what that's all about. I'm just a regular guy. I'm not an expert like you. I'm just like everybody else. I was a young person. I'm watching my mother crying in the kitchen, watching the black and white television of the funeral procession. Since that time, I've always been fascinated by it. They always say, let's go to the videotape. You got the Sapruder film the most watched short film in the history of the world. Before he goes to the obstruction of the sign, he's happy and he's waving, or at least he's looking around the president. He comes out of the sign, he's got his hands to his throat, that universal position of when somebody's hit in the spine or somewhere in the spine, their body goes to that position. And then the film keeps going. You see what happens to him when he's been shot. Please explain to me 
how the American people and how everybody in the, the Senate and the Congress and everybody around after the Warren Commission comes out and Arlen Specter is the lead guy who says it's a single bullet, single oh. bullet theory. Will you explain to me as an expert how it's possible to sell that to the American people and the Senate and the Congress and everybody in the world when the videotape clearly shows that it wasn't a single bullet? Well, you sell it by a combination of, of propaganda, of control of the media, uh, which they have. If you want to look into Dorothy Kilgallen's death, you might find that illustrative. Um, you do it by um, a absolutely stocked deck in the Warren Commission. You do it because the two principal data gatherers for the Warren Commission were the perpetrators. <laughs> okay. And um, you know, there were so many obvious things that should have been done that weren't. When it comes to the magic bullet theory, there isn't anybody who's a pro in shooting uh, that don't find that laughable. And I've been taught by the very best in the world, the very best. And nobody would argue with that. You're talking about people that have won Olympic gold medals, who are recognizable experts. There's never been a finer sniper than Carlos Hathcock. Uh, and what have you. And uh, it was a very small world. And we were briefed when we would, let's say, in 1960, when Charles de Gaulle came to Washington to visit Eisenhower. We were briefed by the French Secret Service on the OAS's activities, uh, which were out to kill uh, de Gaulle. And also that uh, the uh, some of the top special forces of the French government had rebelled against the Gaul because they wanted, didn't want independence for Algeria. And they melted into the Marseille underground to become hitmen for hire. They became uh, probably the finest group of assassins for hire in the world. So, you know, I was privy to that kind of information, but the American people are in shock. They're gullible. They have people that they've learned to trust unquestionably in both institutions and Walter Cronkite's of this world. And I think we know today that that trust was in many cases, maybe most cases, misplaced. I can tell you working with the FBI through Wackenhut as an example that uh, we were hired by Governor Kirk of Florida to investigate ties between organized crime and the Florida State Legislature. I wasn't on that detail myself, but uh, I was aware of it. And in just a period of a few months, uh, Wacken had, had uh, indictments prepared against over half of the Florida State Legislature, and the legislature voted to cut off all funding to Governor Kirk's office. Governor Kirk couldn't pay Wacken Hut, Wacken Hut walked off the job, and the indictments died. That's Florida. Okay? Things haven't gotten better since, nor have they gotten better with the U.S. Congress. Uh, I better stop here because. What I have to say is dynamite, it's absolute dynamite. Tommy, can you hear me on the acid queen? 
I'm riding along Balanca Lincoln limousine Riding in the back seat next to my wife Heading straight on into the afterlife I'm leading to the left I got my head on the left Oh Lord, I've been led into some kind of a trap Well, we ask no quarter No quarter do we give We're right down the street From the street where you live They mutilated his body and they took out his brain What more could they do? They piled on the pain But his soul was not there Where it was supposed to be at For the last 50 years They've been searching for that Freedom, oh freedom, freedom over me I hate to tell you, mister, but only dead men are free Send me some love and tell me no lie Throw the gun in the gutter and walk on by Wake up, little Susie, let's go for a drive Cross the Trinity River, let's keep hope alive Turn the radio on, don't touch the dials Parkland Hospital, only six more miles You got me dizzy, Miss Lizzie, you fill me with lead Magic bullet of yours has gone to my head I'm just a Patsy like Patsy Klein Never shot anyone from in front or behind Got blood in my eye, got blood in my ear I'm never gonna make it to the new frontier Stupidest film I've seen like before Seen it 33 times, maybe more It's vile and deceitful, it's cruel and it's mean Ugliest thing that you ever have seen They killed him once and they killed him twice Kill him like a human sacrifice The day that they killed him Someone said to me, son The age of the Antichrist Has just only begun Air Force One coming in through the gate Johnson sworn in at 2.38 Let me know when you decide to throw in the towel It is what it is And it's murder most foul But you mentioned something interesting before You mentioned that you also had training as a sniper 
you mentioned that the government had access to the greatest assassins, snipers in the world that were trained all over. So why is a guy who is a runner for the mob, who's calibrating the weapons, asked to be back up on the grassy knoll and you believe took the fatal shot in an elaborate plot to kill the president and a guy who isn't even a trained assassin at the time, he's 23 or something, is the guy who takes the fatal shot? Does that sound like a foolproof plan? Uh, I can answer that with making a separate but highly related point. Um, I know LBJ was in overall charge of, uh, of all of this for the reasons I've stated. And he had the, he was the only one who had the power to deal with the cover-up and, and all, all of these other problems that each of these groups had. And he would, because he was very close to those uh, organizations. And that's an understatement. Okay? But he had his own hitman, Mac Wallace. And Mac Wallace wasn't a guy that any of these other groups would trust with their futures. Now, I think you can see that, right? Well, nobody would trust, um, certainly, Oswald either. And in terms of files, uh, there are at least three people who've done excellent, excellent interviews with files. And I've talked to two of them, and they say basically they were convinced by files, but their doubt is there because he seems so young. Well, let me tell you, at the time of the shooting, Files, me, the greatest sniper we ever produced, Halfcock, okay, were all almost an identical age with a lot of experience. And Files, I wrote him a letter in, it was a Denville prison last spring asking to be put on his visitors list. And I, I listed a number of questions, shooter to shooter, that I would like him to respond to. And those questions were what you might suspect. I was very familiar with, but I can't talk about uh, parts of the secret war in Laos that occurred at that time, that he claims to go there. And I can tell you, what I can tell you, is that both the Mafia and the CIA were well involved in the Golden Triangle at that point in the narcotics business. Okay. So he goes into the middle of that, and he comes out to go back to Chicago and form a relationship with Nicoletti and become a hitter. But he still, to some degree, represents the CIA as well as the mob. So I wanted to know who he hooked up with and where he got his training. I still do want to know that. However, um, I can explain one thing about files that nobody knows, and I think that you'll find it very interesting. When I joined the Marine Corps, there were a lot of orphans that joined. And I was sitting uh, one uh, evening, we had our own little bar where we lived, uh, and uh, in that bar, two senior NCOs one of whom is in Time Magazine in a photograph with me with the Kennedys and President Kekon and Finland, his wife, who's a, a veteran, was a veteran ultimately of uh, three wars, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. At that time, he was a veteran of two. And they were laughing. They were laughing about how young 
Marines come in who not had fathers or had you know that kind of problem, and they latch onto sergeants as their surrogate fathers without realizing it, and it's so common that it's humorous to them, although they reciprocate. So you get this bond between people like that. Well, Files, you know, I have a question for him about his childhood. I haven't heard any comments about his parents or anything. But he certainly, I recognize his bonding with Nicoletti, who is double his age, more than double his age. Uh, and why he felt so strongly, even today, about getting even for the assassination of Nicoletti by the CIA, directly or indirectly, I'm sure, along with Giancana uh, and others. Um, I can also recognize that Files was, says that he doesn't have any regrets today about the Kennedy assassination. The reason that he quotes is the Bay of Pigs. Well, I was fully involved and subject to all of the secrecy agreements, so I can't talk about it, all the Cuban operations. And I can tell you, and I've said this publicly and without hesitation, but I can't explain it, other people, that if Kennedy had landed in either operation, he'd be at risk of being killed by his own men. And that's a feeling that Nicoletti uh, referenced but didn't explain. But I know what that feeling was. I was very confused myself. Uh, protecting Eisenhower and, and what wonderful people the Eisenhowers were. Any transition from one executive officer to another is difficult. But to go from two wonderful people like that uh, into uh, someone who is, he and Jackie, somewhat plastic, uh, and what have you, is not easy. But when you're aware of what's going on in those two operations, um, on the one hand, I had some very strong feelings against Jack. On the other hand, I have very even stronger feelings that I'm determined if I ever can to bring down his killers, and that I'm doing here. Um, so I would, on the other hand, I would watch a speech that uh, Jack Kennedy would give in his oratory, and I would be just as emotionally swayed as everybody else and think, well, what a wonderful guy, <laughs> what a wonderful concepts, you know. So it was confusing to me, because I was one of those people, too. My father would be hospitalized for three years at a time, and I latched onto one of the two sergeants who was talking. I changed my habits immediately as soon as I became aware. And I, I immediately identified with and understood exactly where Files was coming from, how he felt about Nicoletti, how Nicoletti felt about him, because there is no institutional loyalty in the CIA, the FBI, the Marine Corps, or anything else per se. You have loyalties to your, your unit, and you have loyalties to personal relationships that you trust, because your life is on the line, and you don't play with that. So. They knew they could get double-crossed any minute in the, uh, in the Mafia. So they had each other's back, no matter what. And that's why Nicoletti gave Files the book with evidence against various dirty people to help protect him. Because once he saw Giancana was whacked, he knew he was next, and he was hoping to help his surrogate son out, who's Files. I'm not a psychiatrist. I shouldn't practice psychiatry without a license. But I've seen that so many times, it makes me sick. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. 
It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Obviously, you feel that LBJ and the CIA were involved in this because they covered it up, and you don't cover something up that you don't start. But certainly, in the best laid plans, the, the greatest high-profile murder in history that there's all these groups that are involved in planning. Certainly, you're not hoping that the 23-year-old driver who's calibrating the weapons is the guy who you're counting on to carry out the mission. So what's your philosophy on that? I just, I don't agree with that premise either. At 17, I would kill you in a heartbeat and not think twice about it. But if you were the president of the United States, would you want the guy who has tons of experience carrying out your job, or would you want the guy who's the runner that week for the mob? Let, let me uh, tell you what my feeling is about that. I think it was the biggest mess I've ever seen in my life. I think it couldn't been run a more sloppy or public way. I think the amount of professionalism involved was almost nothing. And the reason was, the same reason that the Russians uh, during the Cold War built very powerful fighters. Because they built the biggest engines and you couldn't overhaul them, so once they needed an overhaul, you had to throw them away and get other ones. They, they relied on sheer power. Well here, they held all the power. They held the CIA, they held the FBI, they held the Department of Justice, they held the law, they held Texas, they held the presidency, they held the Warren Commission. That's a big engine. And they can be as sloppy as they like because they also controlled a lot of the media. Now they control almost all of it. And that meant that they just bulldozed their way through. But uh, do I admire the professionalism? No. When it comes to the shooting, you've got Mac Wallace running around uh, in a very uh, boastful way talking about having 54 shooters on uh, people involved in the killing under him and all this sort of thing. Uh, I don't think he had anybody under him to, for those purposes. I think I know where that comes from and I explain it in my book. Um, so you certainly wouldn't trust LBJ's hitman if you're the CIA or FBI. But the people that were used are people that are reliable. People like Lonsdale, 
people like David Atlee Phillips, okay? people like the five senior technicians in the FBI who doctored evidence. There was a lot there that you could rely on, but there was so much loose talk. The day of the assassination was like a damn carnival. People came not only from out of town, but from out of the country to watch it. There were so many people in the know. All right, it's something, the less you knew about the better, and you've heard files say, look, the less you know about these things, the better. Is he right? Is he right? This, this was a farce. It was a social event in Texas life. What's new, pussycat? What I say? I said the soul of a nation will turn away. And it's beginning to go into a slow decay. That it's 36 hours past Judgment Day. Wolfman Jack, he's speaking in tongues. He's going on and on and on at the top of his lungs. Play me a song, Mr. Wolfman Jack. Play it for me in my long Cadillac. Leave me that only the good die young. Take me to the place Tom Dooley was hung. They say James Infirmary in the court of King James. If you want to remember, you better write down the names. Play it at James too. Play it rather go blind. Play it for the man with a telepathic mind. Play John Lee Hooker, play Scratch My Back. Play it for that strip club owner named Jack. Guitar Slim going down slow. Play it for me and for Marilyn Monroe. Is there a path to closure for the Kennedy family and the American people and the world with the release of these new documents? And if there is, how do you see it shaking out? There is a path. And it's, it's a path that we have no option but to take. Um, the... A little over a year ago, when um, Larry Sabato at the University of Virginia was going from hardcover to softcover on his book on the assassination, um, I spent three months with his chief of staff, a little bit with him, going over the book and uh, commenting on timelines and whatever. But his basic conclusion you know, was not good, but he wanted to know what did I think Kennedy's legacy was. And I had to think about that and get back to him on it. And when I did, I, for the first time, I got the answer myself. The legacy, because he, he had no real legacy from the first term in office. And I had harsh feelings about him. But when I got through that process, I developed respect for him. And now I do think he could have been a great president had he lived for another term. Because he had set 
in motion basic changes to rectify, which in part he found and understood. To a great extent, he didn't realize how large an adversary he was taking on. He was breaking rice bowls all over the place, more than he knew. So his legacy was that he had started to withdraw troops from Vietnam. He had recognized the need to break up the CIA and, and form a new intelligence agency. He recognized the need to forcibly retire J. Edgar Hoover and ignore blackmail. He recognized the need to have detente and to deal with a totally out of control Joint Chiefs of Staff who were recommending a first strike on the Soviet Union and false flag strikes on two U.S. cities, which he tape recorded. And when he listened to tape recorders without the knowledge of his own staff, he found that after he had left, and these were the recommendations they were making to him, they went on to talk about the necessity of eliminating him. People understand how corrupt everything has become in order to fix it. And we have a man in office right now who is uh, the person who, when he says drain the swamp, that's exactly what he means. Which is why I have spent some very intense time with both the FBI and the Secret Service a year ago convincing them of the absolute need to protect them, knowing both to some degree were dirty. Uh, and that I gave them a list of the people who absolutely, to, with raw intelligence that was current, that absolutely had to have them dead rather than be president of the United States, because the assassination of Kennedy isn't the main event. We're involved in the main event right now. This is a continuum of activity that was dirty starting with World War II, and it goes on to date. Tell our audience the greatest holy shit moment story that you have in your arsenal. All your stories are drowning in the ocean and the one that you can tell to our audience that maybe hasn't been told or it's an obscure chapter in a book or it's from research that you found surrounding the assassination of JFK. There is such a story, but I'm, I'm bound to secrecy, and until such a time as the government can release me from that, I cannot tell you what it is. Would you mind telling us a story that you have told, but that maybe this wide an audience has never heard? <laughs> Man, I know so many. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I know. On, not just on the Kennedy assassination, but on every major national security event we've had. Uh, the one I, I've already referenced that I can't comment on is the granddaddy of, of everything. Um, I, I'm in a strange position, a unique position. I don't think anybody else has ever been anything quite like it. Um, when I was uh, in the Marine Corps, when I was detached to the presidential protection detail, when I was detached for this and that, um, and when I worked for Wackenhut, I had top secret clearances in just about everything, uh, top secret White House, you name it. Um, and I was subject to the most dire personal uh, treatment if I were to ever violate that, okay? However, when I left all of that, I thought I had anyway, and I went to Wall Street, 
and became very successful, successful in international trade and what have you. Um, I started to get involved with um, the military-industrial complex in a way that nobody else in history ever has. For 37 years, I've been involved in special operations and everything you can imagine. But I didn't work for the government. I didn't even have one expense reimbursed. And um, on 911, as an example, I was working directly with the, the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency staff and him. And um, after a number of meetings, some of which were held in my own penthouse in Pentagon City, I, um, in, in a break, I said to an aide, how is it I don't have any more polygraphs? I'm not involved, you know. Oh, no, you're way past that. You don't have any more. So the question is, am I, sub am I subject to any security agreements on all the things I've done since, which have a wealth of fascinating stuff? And I don't mean just to titillate anybody, but very important stuff. Um, I don't know if I'm subject to any penalties because I was not an employee of any of these agencies. And I was loaned out to foreign governments and their intelligence agencies, and they told me all sorts of secrets. Nobody's ever debriefed me or tried to on the United States side. Nobody's ever debriefed me on what I know on, on the U.S. side and the foreign ones. And I have a network of friends all over the world, including in intelligence agencies, because I'm a fair broker and I'm an honest man. And that has made my career because I can do transactions nobody else could even dream of doing it. And I've been asked by the U.S. government on more than one occasion to represent the U.S. government abroad on sensitive issues. And yet I hold no clearance. Or they tell me I have any kind of clearance there is. I mean, and they talk openly. So I don't know. I don't know what my legal status is. So based on what I'm seeing from this documentary and around this whole thing that we're talking about and the new administration coming in, how much trouble are we in as Americans and how much trouble are we in in the world? In Dallas last November 22nd, a very good speaker stood up with an audience. It was three quarters people who've been investigating and researching all this stuff very professionally for the last almost 50 years. And before he started, he says, how many people here believe that this is about right and wrong? And without hesitation, three-quarters of the audience stood up without any conversation or anything. So the trouble we're in is uh, almost biblical, that things have gotten so bad that we're at the tipping point. And if the wrong decisions are made this year, this year, anything can happen. And I mean anything, including thermonuclear war, which I know a lot about. What can you do, I do, the American people and the people of the world who don't want that to happen, what can they do to change that, knowing that 62 million people pressed a lever 
to make America great again? I have the answer for that. I've spent my lifetime in international trade, so I know a lot about people all over the world. I know in basic matters, people are the same in every country of the world. They love their children. They'd rather be honest than dishonest. There are aberrations to that, but in general, transparency. We need to lance the wound. And I'm, I'm aiming for my book to be one of the things that does that. And I, I'm encouraging, trying to encourage all the investigators to find a channel of communication to this administration in order to provide the evidence, the structure, the knowledge of all of this so that this administration can take the actions it needs to take. But that's precisely why the people who are doing all the bad things will do anything to stop them from doing that, and you're looking at it every day. And obviously the media is no help. Gordon Ferry, check out his new book, Evil, coming out within the next six months. And I really appreciate you coming. You were really wonderful, and you had such expertise. Thank you so much. Thank you. Play, please don't let me be misunderstood. Play it for the first lady, she ain't feeling too good. Play Don Henley, play Glenn Fry. Take it to the limit and let it go by. Play it for Kyle Wilson, too. Looking far, far away down Gower Avenue. Play tragedy, play twilight time. Take me back to Tulsa to the scene of the crime. Play another one and another one bites the dust. Play the old rugged cross and in God we trust. Ride the pink horse down that long, lonesome road Stand there and wait for us to explode Play mystery train for Mr. Mystery The man who fell down dead like a rootless tree Play it for the reverend, play it for the pastor Play it for the dog that got no master Play Oscar Peterson, play Stan Getz, play Blue Sky, play Dickie Betts. Play Art Pepper, Thelonious Monk, Charlie Parker, and all of that junk. All that junk and all of that jazz. Play something for the Birdman of Alcatraz Play Buster Keaton Play Harold Lloyd Play Bugsy Seagull Play Pretty Boy Floyd Play the numbers Play the odds Play Crimea River For the Lord of the Gods Play number nine, play number six Play it for Nancy and Stevie Nicks Play Nat King Cole, play Nature Boy Play down in the boondocks for Terry Marlowe Play it happened one night, and one night of sin 
There's 12 million souls that are listening in Play merchant of Venice, play merchants of death Play Stella by Starlight for Lady Macbeth Don't worry, Mr. President Help's on the way Your brothers are coming There'll be hell to pay Brothers, what brothers? What's this about hell? Tell them we're waiting, keep coming We'll get them as well Love Field is where his plane touched down But it never did get back up off of the ground It was a hard act to follow Second to none They killed him on the altar of the rising sun But they missed you for me And that old devil moon Play anything goes And Memphis and Jim Play lonely at the top And lonely at the brave Play it for Houdini spinning around Way. Play Jelly Roll Morton, play Lucille Play Deep in a Dream and play Driving Wheel Play Moonlight Sonata in F sharp And the key to the highway for the king of the heart Play Marching through Georgia Button strokes. Play darkness and death will come when it comes. Play love me or leave me by the great bird town. Play the blood stained banner, play murder most foul. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world, many of which you'll hear on the next three weeks of podcasts. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, Pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963. 
and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session today at barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this. And I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.